0: During Lent this year, we're focusing our time around Amy Jill Levine's study entitled Entering the Passion of Jesus, a Beginner's Guide to Holy Week. Levine says in that text that every great story has both history and risk. History serves to ground us in what's happening in the present. Risk highlights the potential for both great loss and great reward. The stories of Jesus' last week on earth are replete with both history and risk. Last week we looked at the story of the righteous entry in which Jesus counters Pontius Pilate, Pilate's grand parade with his own entry into Jerusalem on a donkey's back. In so doing, Jesus and his disciples were risking their reputations. I asked, based on what Levine has asked, what is the cause you have taken up how much have you risked do you know what your answer is i hope you were able to spend some time with those questions during the beginning of this lenten season this week we'll spend some time with a jesus who turns tables in the temple the story appears in all four gospels though differently placed and differently emphasized i've chosen along with levine to focus on mark And John the first and last of the written Gospels. The risk in this story is apparent from the first. Jesus goes into the temple complex and causes a ruckus. There are temple police who are Roman. Given that pilgrims are coming for the Passover feast, there are people everywhere. Levine writes that there is risk for us too in our reading in that the Synoptic Gospels tell us very different things than John does. In the Synoptic Gospels, so so named because they offer one relatively cohesive vision, the clearing of the temple takes place during Holy Week, right after the righteous entry. But in John, it takes place in the second chapter, right after the miracle at Cana. This might worry some folks, making them question the integrity of the biblical text. But Levine soothes. The gospel writers are telling their readers what they think the readers ought to know. The differing details give us different insights because they present the same story from different perspectives. So here's what we know historically. The temple complex was enormous, as large as 12 soccer fields laid end to end. You couldn't see from one end to the other. Therefore, Jesus's actions in one part of the temple are symbolic rather than practical. Really, nobody's going to see it unless those who are present in the court of the Gentiles. But what was the symbol? King Herod the Great had begun the building of the temple, and it was still under construction during the time of Jesus, some 46 years later. It had several courts. And from inside to outside, they are the Holy of Holies, where only the priest could enter one day a year to make atonement for himself and the people. The next is the court of priests. Outside of that is the court of Israel. Then the court of the women. And finally, the court of the Gentiles, where this story takes place. This outermost court is where the vendors would have been selling their goods the temple is not just a place of worship in jerusalem it is really the heartbeat of the city it is the heartbeat of the region really and at this point would be teeming with humanity especially during a festival as important as the passover it was loud and boisterous and full of celebrants remembering their freedom from egypt the temple was a place of worship a destination for pilgrims the national bank and the only place in the Jewish world where one could offer sacrifice. This last part is important because it means vendors would have to be on site. There's no other way to do things because if you are a pilgrim coming and you're bringing an animal for sacrifice, if it gets injured, if it gets blemished, if it gets eaten, it's no longer a worthy sacrifice. So there is no evidence, textual or historical, that vendors were cheating, supplicants, So what on earth is going on? Mark tells us Jesus scouted the temple in chapter 11, verse 11, writing, "'And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, "'and when he had looked around at everything "'as it was already late, "'he went out to Bethany with the 12.'" He doesn't mention, like John does, money changers. He doesn't mention a whip made out of cords, He doesn't mention turning over tables and pouring out their coins. But what we do get from all four accounts is that Jesus is angry, and righteously so. So most often in Christian circles, we're raised to believe that the temple system must have been exploitative, or that it kept people out for purity reasons. So Jesus rejected, therefore, the temple and its system. We hear that Caiaphas, the high priest, must have been a terrible person, but none of these things have textual or historical support either. Jesus didn't hate the temple. He called it his father's house. Jesus restored people to ritual purity, and then, like the man that he heals in the book of Luke, of leprosy, he says, go show yourself to the priest. And Caiaphas' job as high priest is to keep the peace. He is in such a tenuous position, Caiaphas. He was appointed by Rome and serves at the pleasure of Pontius Pilate. Indeed, even his priestly garments are kept by Pilate. He cannot do his job if he makes Pilate or Rome angry. So he's between a rock and a hard place, needing to keep the temple and the people safe from Roman authority, but still uphold Jewish tradition. So if Jesus isn't protesting the temple or its system, if he's not accusing its attendees of exploitation, and if he's not condemning purity laws, what in the world is going on? Mark 11:17 says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Indeed, Jesus is standing in the court of the Gentiles asking a rhetorical question, for Gentiles are already allowed to be present and they're already allowed to worship in the temple complex. But here we find challenge and risk for ourselves. We are challenged to ask ourselves whether our churches are houses of prayer for all the nations. We are challenged to ask if we make people feel welcome. We are challenged to listen to our own talk and ask ourselves how it sounds to newcomers. How do we make church feel like a house of prayer for all of the nations that is truly welcoming for all? But John's text, as I said, is placed and focused differently. In the Gospel of John, the cleansing of the temple comes right after the wedding at Cana. And in this text, Jesus does overturn tables and make a whip out of cords and drive out vendors think the focus of John's gospel is that he is anticipating a time when there will be no need of a temple because all of Jerusalem will be a seamless house of prayer. Levine writes, the sacred nature of the temple will spread through all the people, extending the holiness of the temple to every household. She asks for me hard questions. Can our homes be as sanctified as filled with worship as the local church? Do we do our best on Sunday from 11 a.m. to 12 noon, but it just engage in business as usual during the work week? Do we pray only in church or is prayer part of our daily practice? Do we celebrate the gifts of God only when it is time to do so in the worship service, or do we celebrate them day to night? Is the church just a building Or is the church the community who gathers in Jesus' name, who acts as Jesus taught, who lives the good news? Jesus' words anticipate a time when worship is seamless from home to church to marketplace, filling our lives to the brim with the glory and grace of God. John's account of the cleansing of the temple closes with Jesus talking about his death. Already here in chapter 2 of the gospel. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The narrator has to clue us in on Jesus' meaning. Writing, He was speaking of the temple of his body. History helps us here. We know that Pontius Pilate ruled Judea from 26 to 36 CE. And Jesus died somewhere between those dates. The traditional date of 33 CE is historically plausible. The Roman army destroyed the temple in 70 CE and John's Gospel was written in about 100 CE, somewhere between 90 and 100. So the author of the Gospel of John knew the temple had been destroyed so it's possible that he's writing that Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple just like the prophets would have done, just like Jeremiah predicted with the Babylonians 500 years before. Jesus' Jewish followers would have taken comfort in the promise that his body is the new temple. And as we step farther into Lent, we can think about what bodies mean to Jesus and to us. I think we have to take seriously the idea that a community gathered in Jesus' name, the body of Christ, is a place where all are welcomed. Is that true for all persons here, or only those who look and speak and act like us? Is it a place where we feel free to act one day on one way on Sunday morning and another the rest of the week? I certainly hope not. If the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and we are made in the image and likeness of God, says Genesis then each person, each embodied, fleshed person has immense value. When you look into the mirror or into the mirror of another person's face, you are looking at the image of God. With our polarization and demonization of those who are different, we forget to be righteous in our anger. We forget to work to tear down systems of oppression rather than persons who are oppressing We know the history of what happens when we fight persons. We have war and concentration camps and kids in cages. So what are we willing to risk to bring real change to systems that harm real persons made in the image of God? For Levine, this is what it means to risk righteous anger. So I ask again, When a friend comes to you and says, what is the cross that you're bearing? What is the cause that you have taken up? How much have you risked? Do you know what the answer is? Amen.